and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 186. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week on the show, we're taking a little trip down under into the bush of Australia, where the fauna is so badass you can't do anything but grit your teeth and laugh uncomfortably when it makes fun of your mom. <laughs> oh, you guys. You guys are crazy. Come on. My mom doesn't lay eggs. She's a mammal. <laughs> That's totally ridiculous. What? Oh, shit. You guys are monotremes, aren't you? Because of Australia's great age, extremely variable weather, and long-term geographic isolation, it's mega-diverse in the badass animal department. There are a greater number of reptiles there than any other country in the world. All sorts of weird-ass marsupials, crazy poisonous snakes, big-ass sharks. It should come as no surprise that Aboriginal Dreamtime mythology is chock-full of bizarre and menacing megafauna. From the bellowing bunyip to the giant carnivorous koala they call a drop bear, the floating seaweed monster monster known as the Muljuank, to the blood-sucking red-skinned midget monster known as the Yarmayahu. Who knows what might be real or bogus, or what might have just retreated deep into the dark, isolated jungles and deserts, deep into time and myth, as men further colonized their land. Like the thylacine, for example, a pungent, eight-foot-long carnivorous marsupial that went extinct in 1936. Or hell, a Tasmanian devil, endangered and on his way out, and already built into our mythology, albeit the Looney Tunes variety. So yeah, this week's story, a mystery suspense involving strange, unknown creatures. Eat your heart out, Agatha Cryptid. But first, a drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called Turning to Stone, and it comes to us from Stephen Souse. Stephen injects people with radioactive stuff for a living, but only to serve the forces of good. His writing work has been in the anthologies Hungry for Your Love and Time Shares, as well as several magazines both online and off. He can be found at ideatrash.net. She offers to wash my clothes, and her hair's scales slide across my skin. No, I say. We stand on the porch of our, her, place. I look out over the lawn. The apartment key is in my hand. I remind myself that I am leaving her. I could make dinner, she says. Another snake winds around my leg, smelling of chili. You could crash here. This snake holds my neck, smelling of sex. I see her hair, the snakes reflected in the windows. Her hair turns me. I meet my girlfriend's gaze. The apartment key clatters on the ground. There's something about the land, the smell, the snakes. Something that won't let us go, draws us in even while driving us away. 
We stare it in the eye instead of turning our heads, and it turns us into something else. And that leads us into this week's story, Garcane by Samantha Henderson. Samantha's had stories published in realms of fantasy, Strange Horizons, Abyss and Apex, Fantasy Magazine, and other nice places. You've heard her work several times on the Drabblecast, most recently with her story, The Red Bride, which we ran back in the beginning of September. You can keep up with Samantha and her writing at samanthahenderson.com. The story is read to you by a trio of extremely talented people, Graham Dunlop, Mike Boris, and Delianne Forget. You'll find links to their sites in our show notes. Go check them out, hire them. Each of them is wonderful to work with. Okay, so let's get down to it. Without further ado, we bring you Garcane by Samantha Henderson. His home is in the dense jungle along the banks of the Liverpool River. Should anyone venture into that jungle, Garcane, who can fly as well as walk, will wrap himself around the intruder and smother him with the loose folds of skin which are attached to his arms and legs. Charles P. Mountford, The First Sunrise, 1971. after the last fragile infant banana tree gave up the ghost and curled in yellow upon itself. Jan Eccles walked to the boundaries of his claim and found the ashy remains of a pit fire and the charred scraps of his bull buffalo within. The cooking pit was downwind from the shanty and carefully backed against spreading to the grasses that were almost entirely dry in the heat of the Arnhem Land winter. Soon the black fellows would burn it away, laying the ground bare and ruining good timber. At least it looked like good timber, but everything was deceiving in this hellhole he'd made his home. Winter was dry and hot, while summer was wet and gave lie to the promise of rich farms ringing Victoria's settlement like a ring of pearls. Crops were planted with the summer rains in mind, and winter killed them with its omnipresent, near-windless heat. Trees that grew straight and strong-looking, forged by God for first-rate masts and roof beams, splintered at the kiss of an axe. Fish, hooked at risk from a river infested with a bull crocodile on his harem, looked fat and full of flesh, but proved oily, rank, and so full of little bones as to be all but inedible. But they ate them by damn. They ate all they could, boiled the fish for its rancid broth. The boy child was growing gaunt here, fragile looking, his eyes shadowed with hunger and ill health, and the woman was as bony and sour as the fish. There was talk of leaving Victoria Settlement, he knew. They'd lost more men to malaria this past year, and what stores were not used up were rotten and full of maggots. The last supply ship to make landfall at Port Essington reported that the one before her, with fresh shipments of sheep, pigs, Timor ponies and seed, had wrecked shy of Groot Islet. 
Yarn squatted and reached for a broken gum branch nearby, remembering too late to check that it wasn't a snake, slow-bodied and deadly. He was lucky for once, it wasn't, and he poked at the white, cleaned, burned detritus desultorily. There was a scrap of bone, of hide, and a smell of burnt flesh that made his mouth water despite the cold, clotted taste it left on his tongue. Perhaps there was something left the boy could have. But everything was solid, turned to stone. A shard of grass pierced the worn side of his boot and he swore automatically, a short unemotional word, like his occasional rutting on Kate had become in this exhausting place. An urge of the loins, nothing companionable or pleasant about it anymore. Rolling over upon her warmth in the dark of night when he wasn't stiffened sore by the digging, the constant chopping at the black soil that looked so fertile. Any seed spilled there should sprout eagerly, but it was all part of the full trick the land played over and over. He peered into the low scrub. There was a pack of them out beyond the far stand of gums, those black, ashy vermin. Two or three men, one grizzled and lumpy with age. More women, a swarm of brats. Kate had seen them while he was pouring water on the bananas, trying to coax some green out of them. They passed her while she wrung out the laundry in grey water not a hundred feet away and scared the poor slut near out of her wits. Like a dozen of ghosts, she told him later. Black as sin, save for one infant slung over its dam's back, pale against her skin. She didn't dare scream in case they turned on her in their savagery. Good for nothing but burning good land and stealing cattle. The forest by the river opened like a great hole into the heart of the world. Jan still held the stick against his thigh. He'd walk at the edge of the trees and spy them out under the shelter of the gums. The grass was still piercing his boot and on impulse he shook away his tattered footwear. The air felt cool on his skin. The leaves of the gums were dry in the winter heat but green still and the space between them black and blacker. He ventured into their embrace, his head full of the musky smell of decay underfoot. He walked carefully silently watching for prickles or snakes and had a sudden impulse to strip himself bare and harden in the hot bush air like a turtle stripped of its shell. Something stirred in the lower branches of the trees by the darkness where the water trickled. A big animal that stirred from its rest and elongated itself from branch to branch. He squinted at it and it was still. The trees were still. No breeze, birds silent, and only the long tinkle of water low on the riverbed, like the distant sound of a child's smashing glass. For a second his heart slowed, his sense of all that surrounded him sinking through his body until it puddled at his feet. He knew only warm space and rotted leaves and one brittle sound. For a second he was at peace. 
a shrill scream, the creature in the trees launched at him. Its extremities spread wide, arms and legs skinny and long like jointed sticks. Flesh grew beneath the limbs, shoulder to hip and wrist to ankle, so it looked like an enormous bat or bird. It flew through a beam of light from the swollen sun, and the skin was illuminated, pink veins visible in the thick spread skin. In the last instant before his body could react and turn and run, he smelled leather, musty and sour. And then it embraced him. Seventeen eleven. By now, nothing I see on the shores of this godforsaken island should surprise me. But when a white man, a misnomer perhaps, for he was burned red all about the face and bald head, and limbs that protruded from his tattered clothing, and profoundly leathery, and our sailors were fair maids in comparison, came staggering from the trees at the mouth of the river where it came to meet the sea, I did jump, my heart between my teeth, and grabbed for my weapon. Klaus was making fast the boat behind me, and I heard him leave off and stand at my shoulder. He was in no condition to be dangerous, pitiful thin and legs so weak they shook beneath him, and his rags could hide no weapon. I lowered mine, but kept it close in my left hand as he came to us, and had I not taken one arm and Klaus the other, he would have fallen and for all I know shattered all his bones. He clutched at me, his eyes all blue and watery, and started to babble. I have some English, and English he was, unless he was mad or lying. I pieced together some of his talk. He was a hand upon a Dutch ship, he said, and left behind. Beside me, Klaus shook his head. The last ship here was the Veyer, 05 or 06, he said in his low rumble. He's not been running wild that long. The man sobbed and glanced behind him at the woods. Garcane, he said, pointing with a shaking hand and shrank against us. At the rim of the trees some dark figures stood, the natives of this place, long and woolly-haired. I tensed, for they could be dangerous, and several carried their long, barb-tipped spears. They held them upright at their sides, however, not poised for battle. Peaceful, but waiting. Garcane? I looked at Klaus, and he frowned. That's not what they're called, he said, and shrugged. We half-lifted him into the boat and rowed back under the piercing, distant glare of the natives. We had to drag him up the side and drop him on deck. The master gave us dour eye and told us to take him to Peterson or drop him over the side, whichever we preferred, and sounding as if he'd favored the latter. Peterson was our ship's doctor, or closest we had to it, a burly Englishman gone to fat who affected a grimy wig even in this climate. He was drowsing in his clove-smelling chamber, but stirred himself when Klaus and I shouldered the castaway in. Klaus left us with a lift of his eyebrow. I stayed, for I was curious. Exposure and dehydration, Peterson rumbled. And scurvy, he added, lifting the madman's lip and exposing the shrunken gums below. Says he's been ashore five years left by his mates, I said. And the doctor shook his head. The castaway suddenly spilled forth a stream of English, too fast for me to pick out more than a few words, plus that queer term, Garcane. The doctor nodded distractedly and felt the sides of his throat, skinny and wattled like a chicken's. What does he say? I asked. Delirious, he replied. Says he's been walking the river bottom. Says he's a marked man. There was a raised ridge just aside the castaway's collarbone, the right side as I remember, with a dark slit to one end as if something had been inserted beneath. Peterson touched the skin beneath it lightly, 
and the man twitched away, shaken. There's something beneath, said the doctor. I must take it out, though it's not infected by some miracle. Go above, Miklos, before the master ducks your pay. I'll keep him with me this night, since the lot of you are damnably healthy this side of the equator. That night, when a prow of Macassan traders came alongside with casks of their sweet, sharp liquor for the trading, and we let them aboard and killed one of the sheep, we asked about that word, Garcane, and the black fellows like silent witnesses, and their boatmaster, a burly, jolly island man with a fine mouth, a gold-jacketed teeth, laughed and flashed them in their firelight. Such as in a freet, a spook of theirs, he said, in passable French. As I said, little I see or hear surprises me in this land. One of their spirits, or little gods perhaps, who lives upriver and in the trees. He, it, is like a bat, or flying rat, all skin between the wrist and ankle. And it flies between the trees, and for the most part it keeps to itself. But it is interfered with, they say. It flies upon a man or woman, or child, and smothers in with its own flesh, keeping them up tight like a swaddled babe. He says it has marked him, I said my hand rising involuntarily to my shoulder, though he couldn't understand the gesture. He laughed. If he's in English, as you say, he's mad. And this land is full of little gods. Who knows what he met upriver? I nodded and wondered if he slept finally beneath our feet, in the doctor's chamber, with its smell of liniments and cloves. 1981 Ephemera from the Working Files of Senior Detective Victoria McKibben, Northern Territory Police Association, Alice Springs, pertaining to the investigation of the death of Dr. Henry Loundon. A single page from the Administrative Museum catalogue of the Alice Springs Museum of Indigenous Cultures. The page is legible, although a palm-sized area on the lower right is torn, wrinkled, and smudged with paint or blood. Written addendum on top of page, pencil. Item not currently on exhibit due to disputed ownership and provenance. Cabinet 23, drawer 12, tracking number 3452. Medicine, sacred bag or pouch, 41 centimetres by 18 centimetres. Found in the Ewening Reserve, possibly at a burial site. The stitching utilizes a cured sinew or a strip of animal skin and is unusually fine. Previously unknown symbol painted on the exterior resembling the evil eye ward, common to Arabic Semitic sources. The symbol is centered, surrounded by the traditional patterns more familiar to students of Aboriginal art with its many dots and stylized waves. Cabinet 23, draw 12, tracking number 3453. Item found inside tracking number 3452. 23 centimetre flake of green glass worked into a spear point. The material, which has many bubbles and occlusions, resembles that found in middens peculiar to Arnhem Land, where trade was long-standing between the Lyongu and Macassan Trepingers. Typed addendum. The animal skin used in the construction of the pouch has not been identified. It is not kangaroo, opossum, or any hide known to be utilized by the Yongu or any other indigenous peoples. It is leathery and no fur or hair remains attached. The sinew used in its stitching is of a different origin, 
in all likelihood a possum. Written addendum, pencil. Human, there is tattooing visible on the anterior. Written addendum, blue ink. Nonsense. Written addendum, pencil. You're a bloody ass, London. Written addendum, blue ink. Manners, Maria. Written addendum, pencil. Screw manners, London. This isn't like anything else in any other mainland collections, and you know it. I've got a song line from the Yongu about this thing, the glass dart, and you know it's got to be about this one because there isn't another. Written addendum, blue ink. See me, office hours. I'm not coming in at night. A half sheet of paper is clipped behind with the following notes. Pouch point in storage. Curator Maria Addison, uncooperative regarding. Strangulation. Hemorrhages in eyes consistent. According to the medical examiner, the hyoid bone is not fractured. Note to self. Is that possible? Exterior museum steps. Impossible that there were no witnesses at that time of day. Someone saw something. Mary Addison, late twenties, unmarried. No boyfriend, according to staff. Queried if lesbian. Department secretary Nadine Comer thinks not. Handwriting consistent with pencil bloody ass note. Possible lovers quarrel. Blackmailing London. Relationship previous to museum. Nadine Comer states possible at university. Henry Loundon, 58, 14 years in current position, divorced one son, New York. Addison extended leave. The inquest returned a verdict of death by misadventure. Case of Henry Loundon remains open. Loose in the file is an index card with the following note. June 6, 82. Phone call, Nadine Carmer. Claims to have seen Mary Addison, still on leave, no missing persons report. Outside bedroom window. Upside down like a bat, with teeth. Too many teeth. Constable Byers examined grounds, no fresh footprints. Background check on Carmer negative. Have set ping back for sightings of Mary Addison. September 82, no record. February 83, no record. August 83, no record. Seventeen eleven. It came in the dark of that night. The ship anchored in the shallow seas off Groot Islet with a mean little sliver of moon overhead. A shriek like a despairing soul from the bowels of the ship. Shrill and everywhere at once, so one could not at first delve where. I had just gone to my hammock after my shift at night watch, and though I tried to make my body spring to the deck below, it wouldn't move at first, frozen in a tangle of strings. I blinked but couldn't see, and there was roaring in my ears and my limbs froze. My heart felt near to bursting. It was like that fear that takes a man on land in a dead hour, sometimes safe in his bed but unable to move for all his strength, staring in terror at an empty doorway. Something seemed to scuttle past like a rat scuttles behind the timbers, bigger than a rat, and something brushed my face like the edge of a wing. 
I heard the man swinging to the left of me moan. I flailed at the ropes and swung out, landing in a crouch beside my hammock. My knife was tied up in my kit, and I wrestled it free before I could go anywhere. Above my head, where Peterson slept with the marked man beside him, there was the source of my unearthly cry. I ran in the darkness, the other men stirring about me, the anatomy of the ship familiar to my feet and fingertips. I was the first to open the door of the doctor's chamber. An oil lamp flickered sickly on a hook in the wall. By its yellow light, Peterson sat on his leather-slung chair, his legs straight and stiff in front of him, a dark stain spreading across the crotch of his trousers. The fronts of his coat fell carelessly aside his protruding belly. His mouth was open and his eyes bulged wide open, glassy and blind from the chalk-white face. His wig had fallen halfway across his forehead. There was not a sign of the marked man, nor was there a sign of any wound on the doctor, though we stripped him and washed his body on deck in the morning. One thing I always remembered beneath the reek of clothes in his chamber. The heavy smell of leaves, gum leaves rotting, tangy and oily. Yan would have to move quickly. At dusk, the blacks were bound to be at their campfire in whatever shelter their kind scraped out of the bush, curled about each other like dogs. Kate had left the thick wood bowl he took his own supper from when they had it, near the cook fire, the lazy troll. He gathered it up and cocked an ear to listen. Only a low murmur from inside the shanty an alto croon. She was singing the boy to sleep. Jan swayed back and forth a moment, like a tree in the scarce breeze, rubbing his tongue against his upper gums. He'd lost more teeth this day and not even noticed. His tongue snagged on the sharp ridge of a new tooth bursting through the soft lower gum. The deep scratch on the back of his calf was festering. A bolt of iron black with rust and grease, lay on the ground and he seized it, scooping the gold from the fire into the wooden bowl. The flame shrunk, turning feeble and orange, licking desperately over the remaining coals. There wasn't enough left to keep the cook fire alive and they'd be put to the whole bloody business of starting it again the next morning with grass and flint and new wood. How Kate would mule. The low throb of her voice followed Jan as he crept into the bush, the bowl warm under his arm like a feeble child. He was silent. His feet made no rustle in the sharp grass, ready for the burning. His bare skin felt every lick of the wind. He smelled the black's fire before him. His legs did not ache with the crouching now, and the cut on the back of his leg had stopped hurting. It felt mildly warm. He was new made. There, feel which way the breeze blew. The grass was eager to light and they were sleepy with evening. The women made sounds like Kate behind him, talking to their children. He seeded the grass with cold, each ember orange with life inside the black jacket of ash. Yarn Eccles, or the thing that had been Yarn Eccles, 
stood at the crude-hewn frame of the dwelling, watching the still figures of his woman and his child. The smell of smoke and charred grass whispered from downriver, and the smell of cooked flesh beneath that. The air tasted good to him now. His mouth was enormous, a row of sharp teeth below, bare gum above. Long strips of leathery wing bound him, ankle to wrist, rough and sour to smell. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. The Garcane isn't aboriginal in origin, and the story doesn't really point us in any directions as to what it might be. A demon? A mutant wombat? Joan Rivers? What it is, is something that wants you to stay the hell away from its section of river. Or, rephrased in English majorese, a representation of incompatibility with another landscape, and the capacity to become transformed by it. Or, rephrased in Megabeast Deathmatchies, Garcane vs. Drop Bear. Go! So, story time ain't over yet, folks. Got a promo for a micro-story podcast here that you're sure to enjoy, called Clowns and Bunnies and Other Scary Things. This podcast is actually episode 6, which Stephen Lidster, the Drabblecast Foramite who runs this thing, asked me to narrate. But it's short, so it works well as a promo, too. Here it goes. Clouds and bunnies and all scary things. Of Love Eternal and Undying by Stephen D. Lidster. They cared for one another with a love and a kinship that was deep and pure in its sincerity. They gazed into each other's eyes, unblinking, entranced. They saw the scars the other bore and understood the pains of each other's past from wounds both visible and unseen. Their love was pure. Their love was chaste. Side by side they walked under the moonlit sky. They hungered not, nor lusted after each other's flesh in any vulgar or carnal way. But they shared a hunger for the flesh of the living. Who ever said that zombies can't fall in love? Clowns and Bunnies and Other Scary Things is distributed on the Creative Commons 2.5 Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. You'll find that link in our show notes. So, some of you may know that we're a donation-based show. The whole shebang runs off the support of listeners who love it, and we like to publicly thank one said donor each week in a little segment called the Kick-Ass Donor of the Week. This week's is... Will Reese. 
Will is a 32-year-old sci-fi reading, computer game playing, obscure metal music, and sports-loving geekoid who lives in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, England. He's gratefully married to, read-owned by, Katie, his Canadian rose with whom he shares a flat along with the furry, sonic terrorist, Yum Yum the Cat. Newcastle-upon-Tyne, that sounds familiar. I think I just sent you some CDs, buddy. Well, Will, hope you enjoy, and thanks for helping out the show. Give my regards to Yum Yum. That's twice the yum, twice the cat. You folks at home, we could really use your help. Donate once in any amount, or subscribe for five bucks a month, or ten bucks a month. Whatever your means, whatever you're comfortable with. We appreciate it a whole lot. Also, still got my two CDs for ten bucks offer going on. Take advantage of that and help me clear out some closet space here to make room for the new CD in the works. All of that aforementioned money button info off of our main page at drabblecast.org. Alright, week to week we have an ongoing 100 character story contest which we run out of our discussion forums. We call them Twabbles. Give it a shot, post it up, lots of fun. This week's winner is a first-timer, Pub Bat, with this one right here. This, he sighed as he dangled from the long string, is what happens when a scientist decides that cats need thumbs. Well, he already had plenty of yums, I guess. Next best thing. Follow us on Twitter, folks. That's at the Drabblecast. You might find us as clever as we do. All right, people, that's our show. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, write us a review on iTunes, spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's episode artist, one of my favorites so far. This guy always knocks him out of the park. Gerald Dye. Check out more of his stuff at GeraldDye.com. That's J-E-R-E-L-D-Y-E.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, an upside-down bat with too many teeth, possibly lesbian, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that the snake smells like chili. (laughs) 